So curiosity can be quite a treacherous journey. And what I'm interested in particularly is what are the moments when one might retreat again from discovery? You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I expect this conversation with UK-based psychologist Narendra Kraval, who's been writing for years about curiosity and the racist mindset, will stay with you as it has stayed with me. So welcome, Narendra. It's wonderful to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you're a psychotherapist and a clinical psychologist with a particular interest in social justice, especially around the unconscious dynamics of prejudice and racism. What got you there? It's been a long journey, I have to say, but um, it all started actually with working with patients in the consulting room. And becoming very curious, I mean, our, the bedrock of our work is curiosity. You know, how does a patient come to be the way they are? And uh, how might we help them facilitate their own curiosity? And what are the obstacles in themselves that might impede that curiosity? And it's in the course of this work that I began, became very interested in the ways in which some patients might retreat into ways of thinking and feeling as uh, a kind of refuge, if you like. Yeah. And one of these refuges was what I call the racist state of mind, which is a really a racist thinking and feeling, which is used very much like an armor to protect themselves from anxiety. And then the question then arises, of course, is uh, how could you explain how they've actually found that place? How can you facilitate them coming out of that place? How might we speak to that uh, without retaliating, <laughs> um, however provocative the behavior is? Yeah. And so those the kind of questions, a kind of an inquiring attitude to that in the consulting room is what brought me to think about more wider issues about race in society and so on. You come at this, as you say, as a psychologist with this this idea of curiosity as being sort of the foundation of what you do. But you also think about curiosity in very explicit terms. It's not just a state of mind for you, but it's actually a discipline or a structure or a framework as well, isn't it? Very much so. I think that uh, in a way, what we're interested in is how, how does um, the process of curiosity evolve in what direction does it go? Uh, what might be the uh, joys, but also the pains of discovery mm, as mm -hmm. well? So curiosity can be quite a treacherous journey. And what I'm interested in particularly is what are the moments when one might retreat again from discovery? What mm. might be the anxieties? And um, what might facilitate progress towards discovery again. So it's a kind of a toing and froing that constantly goes on with curiosity. And I always see it as relational. We're always curious about something or somebody so that there is always an intimacy with something or somebody. Well, you've also talked about curiosity as, as sort of developmental. It's, it's also being curious about oneself apart from others or from the other, right? And beginning to make that distinction and being willing to 
sit with the discomfort that might come with that distinction, it seems like. Very much so. I think yeah. that a curiosity about oneself can take us to places that can potentially be the undoing of ourselves mm. as we move from a sort of imagined or felt sense of safety, of certainty, to a place of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other seems to represent this place of uncertainty, complexity, diversity, and so on. So I think it's also about the, the, the stranger in ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and as we move from safety of security of certainty to an uncertainty, we might find ways in which we might move forward and retreat again. And that seems to me that's where then your focus on, on racism comes in, because you talk about racism as demanding certainty. That's very much the case, yeah. yes. I, I locate racist uh, thinking and feeling between this place of an imagined sense of safety to the uncertainties of life and complexity of living and so on. And racist thinking and feeling gives us a temporary refuge mm -hmm. for all of us, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from moment to moment. Some people spend more time in it than others, but it's certainly a refuge. Somewhere in, I forget now if it's in the writing about your book or in the the article specifically, racism is a state of mind that, that obstructs curiosity, that it's... Uh, it's not just that it's resistant, but that it's actively resistant against it and shutting it down. I think it was when you were exploring the implications of racism's resurgence, both in the Brexit vote and here in um, in American politics, and that this hurt translates into a toxic grudge using the ballot box as an anger management tool is evident in the effortless slide from a poverty of circumstances to a poverty of thinking. Mm. And I really, I had to pause on that because I thought that's such, such an evocative way of getting to a whole package of things that are going on in that sort of poverty of circumstances that gets expressed as racism. It doesn't have to be racist, mm. but it gets expressed that way, doesn't it? It does, uh, tragically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it does describe this sense, really, this question that we need to ask is uh, under the provocative and sometimes obnoxious behavior, if you mm -hmm. like, what is the racist upset about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the pain? And I think that the problem sometimes is that there is so much noise uh, uh, that we sometimes are either get into a state of wanting to be either dismissive or retaliate or resign, as mm -hmm. it were. But, the, but to, have, to continue in, an inquiring attitude. Yeah. What's behind this noise? What's the, what's the upset about? What's the grievance about? And I come back to this place of safety again, that if you look at the narratives of race, there is a narrative thread going through all of these different kinds of ways of being obnoxious, if you like, one might call it that. It is always about a claim that if you only take the foreigners out, for example, or the other, right. then you will return to a reimagined community that will be safe, there will be relative certainty again, and so on. That just touched on something that really resonated for me in your writing, which is this coupling of curiosity and concern. You almost never use the word curiosity without pairing it 
mm. with concern. You know, to this question of people, like, there's this hurt there and sort of staying curious, being willing to to come forward with curiosity when people are going away from you, resistant to it, as this this expression of concern about, well, what what's actually going on here? What is it? I used to say that, you know, what people are upset about is never what they say they're upset about. It's always something else. And you have mm. to figure out that something else. Correct. And I hear some of that in this as well, that to stay curious in the face of that sort of pain and that resistance and that pushing away is hard work, but important work for all of us. I think so. I think in, in a way, we have to uh, remain anchored to our own uh, humanity mm-hmm. and a sense of moral compass and um, a certain kind of grounding that allows us to sustain the onslaught and continue thinking. Thinking under fire is something that I've, you know. Which I think is lovely, <laughs> another turn of phrase. But but build that out a little bit, particularly in your role as a therapist. You You write about this in terms of needing to think under fire when you're maybe if not personally under attack, but that the dynamic is fraught mm. and you have to keep thinking and staying curious. Mm. Tell me, what's that like? When, I, when you ask me that question, a, a, a particular patient comes to mind. So this was a situation where a patient became very agitated on seeing me in the consulting room. Mm. And I had, an, had a feeling in the room that my brownness had really rattled him somewhere. Mm. And it wasn't long before the onslaught started, really, which uh, started from a sense of my perceived incompetence to my skin color, to smells and all sorts of different things. So the obnoxiousness sort of escalated. And the question really was trying to understand, well, look at how desperate this man is. And he's in a clearly troubled state. And he's doing everything to actually not allow himself to be understood. Right, right. Now, it's very difficult, of course, to think under fire on, on, on that kind of onslaught. And I do believe that in some ways, our patients, in a way, want us to feel in the room with them. Because he's, he's not only terrorizing me or trying to, <laughs> right. he's terrorizing himself. But he wants to bring the story in a live way in the room. So unfortunately, we do have to actually experience something very viscerally, I think. And then to actually step back a bit and try to get a sense of what on earth might be being communicated through this provocative behavior. And of course, he is there. I mean, that... That's a point in his favor, right? I mean, he's put himself into that situation. Absolutely. He's, he's yeah. opened himself up to this, and yet it sounds like he's a little ambivalent about it, and it hurts. It does hurt, yeah. you know, and, and, and he's going to find ways of not allowing himself to be reached yeah. because it will make him feel very vulnerable, ashamed, all sorts of feelings, I think, which are crippling him. And the only thing he can do at his, in his armor, if you like, is to fend off any kind of attempt to actually reach him where mm. it really matters. Mm-hmm. And I believe that this is where we do have to sustain our presence and continue thinking and, 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 and inquiring, actually. Because behind the provocation, uh, there is a, 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 a man in hel- need, need of help, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think it's about trying to move beyond the provocative to something a bit more evocative. 
Mm, nice. And that's the real struggle in the heat of the atmosphere because we're inclined as clinicians, as human beings, of course, to either switch off or inclined to retaliate in some way. We have to remain in role and continue thinking with our patients in a humane way. Well, and to sort of take that to a to a broader stage, if you will, it seems to me that's sort of the answer to why does this matter, that our willingness to stay engaged, stay in dialogue, stay curious, mm. even when it's uncomfortable, even when there's anger and frustration and resistance coming the other direction, has really social implications as well. I mean, societal implications, doesn't it? Very much so. Yeah. And in a way, you've touched on a very central central uh, uh, interest of mine, which is that you know, okay, we can talk about the dynamics in the consulting room, how, how we might navigate ourselves and help our patients in the best way possible. But how do we take that atmosphere of working into the outside world? And, and, and then how do we then cultivate some curiosity when there is so much at stake? Yeah, yeah. And our societal spaces and institutions and so on are, 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 are extremely provocative at times. And it's a real challenge, isn't it? You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by UK-based psychologist Narendra Kaval. We're talking about curiosity and a racist mindset. And you've talked about the importance of cultivating social spaces for curiosity. Do you mean that in a literal sense? Is that a figurative sense? How do you think about that? Well, firstly, I think that in the consulting room, I think one does have to step back a bit and become a participant observer. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. do have to participate in the process and, and allow the patient to do what he has to or she has to do, um, but then also be able to keep a sustained attitude of inquiry. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that is a very, very important analog, if you like, in terms of taking it outside. How do we cultivate that kind of mindset outside? And I've been very interested in seeing um, how we could do that in, in groups. Oh, like what? For example, um, recently we've been involved in trying to look at how we can explore race in the clinical situation mm -hmm. with fellow clinicians. And so we try and create spaces for people to bring their spontaneous thoughts and feelings about the actual subject matter or experience. So we don't make anything prescriptive. And let things, cult, you know, sort of slow socially evolve, if you like. Uh -huh. And of course, it's a very threatening thing to do for lots of people. But over time, what you might find is that people then start to lower their guard a bit and become less anxious and are prepared to be a bit more spontaneous in their thinking and feeling, even ways of thinking and feeling which are uh, troubling them and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think that safety is paramount yeah. to bring these troubled states of mind into the room. And it takes practice, right? I mean, you just sort of have to keep, you have to keep trying, I guess, keep doing it, and, and maybe you get better at it, and maybe, maybe it gets more comfortable, or maybe you just, maybe we just get more tolerant of the discomfort. Quite. I think it is about trying to uh, see what emerges, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the other thing about this whole area of working, is you also have to allow things to emerge without policing thinking. Yeah. So you've obviously had some nice experience with kind of facilitating 
those conversations. Obviously, that's a large part of your day-to-day work. Are there things that you do yourself that you would consider your own curiosity practices or ways of um, building or protecting space that you do personally? That's a very important um, question, actually, for particularly for clinicians, I think, about having to create some space mm-hmm. for us to think not only about our patients, of course, but also ways in which we might uh, think creatively about using that as a platform for understanding wider issues. Mm-hmm. So I do start to think about not only the patterns that emerge in our patient stories, the narrative thread, if you like, but what's the narrative thread outside? Mm. And I'm reminded of um, when I first came to the UK as a 10-year-old and walking in the streets of our neighbourhood, seeing graffiti on the wall, racist graffiti on the wall. And it was a bit of a shock to me that it was, it was aimed at people like myself. Right. And um, once I got, So how did that feel? Well, it was very visceral once people started telling me that it's about you, you know, either go back home or even more obnoxious right. things that were being talked about, on the, on, pasted on the walls. But over the years, I've been thinking back to those scenes on the streets of this racist graffiti. And in the words that people use on the walls of uh, the racist, obnoxious, uh, provocative uh, words, there is a story there, you see. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that, is, that is a fascinating thing for us to do, is to understand what is about this story that says, go back home. Yeah. Whose home has been invaded, for example. Yeah. There's a whole story there that we need to understand. Fascinating. I'd like to have you unpack a passage. As I said, you have a lovely turn of phrase, but I wonder, you know, you use this framework and language of psychotherapy to explore and explain racism. So can you give me a plain language version of the following? The particular appeal of racist narratives lies in their power to call upon a regressive fantasy of return to a dyadic space as a response to the unstoppable march of modernity and its inherent uncertainties. Mm, challenging, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Let me start really in a way that when I, when I think about racist states of mind or racist thinking and feeling, I think this is uh, part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. There's a propensity for all of us to reside in those states, I think. And when I think about these states, they seem to conjure up a sort of uh, a, a sense of certainty and safety of being. That what I that what that's what I refer to as a regressive fantasy. Mm, okay. And the most regressive fantasy of return is back to the back to the womb. Yeah, back <laughs> to the comforts of a maternal situation, uh-huh. if you like, where. Apparently, it's trouble-free and it's peaceful. This is an imagined state, of right, course. You know. Right. We know that it's not, <laughs> but this is an imagined state. And there, and then the real challenge is how to come out of that state, and then confront the realities of life. Yeah. And that requires us to exercise our curiosity about others in a more social, wide space of relationships, and so on. And every time we try and make this movement, there are anxieties. Mm -hmm. There are also pleasures, but there are also anxieties. And when we're very anxious, we return to this place, which is this fantasy place. And I think a lot of racist narratives 
if you think about their uh, political rhetoric and what they what they promise, they promise this fantasy of return to a reimagined community free of intrusions from mm. others. Does that explain? That explains it, and 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 it explains the appeal to people. Quite, yeah. This is very visceral, you see. Right, and it. Uh, you know, what I think is useful about that is that um, for those of us for whom racism is a frustration and makes us angry, it's useful to have the frame for why it would have an attraction mm. to people that isn't necessarily as as um, oppositional <laughs> as it feels. It's, uh, I think it's helpful to, um, to hold that space and, and hold on to the ambiguity of what that means. There's, there's so much inconsistency there. Quite. And staying curious about that, I think, is a really useful tool in the, in the face of that kind of anger and frustration and fear. Yes, quite. Because I think we are invited into becoming inhumane, mm-hmm. as inhumane as racist thinking and feeling is. Right. But when you mention that if we can hang on to that sense, that is actually a something that's very human, this need for certainty and safety and so on. Uh, if we get past the noise, then we're able then to go across the divide. Yeah and understand, well, what is the upset about? So where is your curiosity taking you now? What's next? It's, it's very interesting how things are unfolding. Because since the book came out, I've been, I, I've been revisiting the book and looking at new, new things in it. Oh, are you seeing it with fresh That's eyes? That's right, yes. It's very interesting how that like happens what? in a way. I've been thinking more and more about um, curiosity per se uh-huh. and how to cultivate those spaces, I think, not only just in the consulting room in terms of ways of being with the patient and ways of helping the patient be with themselves, but also how to be socially, how to look at uh, narratives outside mm-hmm. and uh, look at the provocation in the narratives how to go beyond that and perhaps even get people together in communal groups to think about these things in a more spontaneous way, I think, mm-hmm. and see what emerges. Narendra isn't the only one thinking about what might emerge. Sidewalk Talk started for me as a response to... the the fracturing of our society. I think in particular, it was a call. It felt like it wasn't an intellectual thought on my end or some desire to fix something. It was more an intuitive felt sense that kept nudging me, whispering in my ear, if you will, go do this, go do this. And I can't say that I had a clear intention of what exactly I was trying to do, but I am aware that I'm most interested in my own transformation in the process. My name's Tracy Rubel. I'm a San Francisco-based psychotherapist, and I run a global street listening project called Sidewalk Talk. 28 of us came up with some plans for how we wanted to show up as listeners, and then we went and sat our chairs out in 13 locations across the city of San Francisco, 
Sidewalk Talk is a project that came to me as a source of inspiration in 2014. I acted on it in 2015, and 28 of us went out and started sitting our chairs on sidewalks to listen to people about anything. And to date, we have 5,000 volunteers in over 48 cities and 12 countries that now do this with us. I think that people themselves, when they see the project, make an assumption that the project is, is a bunch of people helping other people who don't have anyone to talk to. And it's so much deeper than that. It's really about stretching ourselves to be uncomfortable with ourselves and other people in sometimes uncomfortable situations or sometimes really joyful situations. It's fascinating how sometimes it's uncomfortable for people to share their joy too for fear that is it okay for me to be this exuberant? I'm really curious about how the talker shows up and I so often experience that when we talk as humans to other humans, we oftentimes get very self-aware and lose the other awareness. And so it can't just be the listener that's holding the, the two-person dyad, that actually the speaker also needs to hold in mind the listener while they're talking in order for the connection to stay deep and meaningful. And I think I get that wrong all the time. And I, I think that this, this, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, how do we, we need to speak differently too. We need to speak differently too. Not in a self-censoring way at all. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in a contactful way. If Cyber Tech were wildly successful and it could be whatever I wanted to be, I would love every human on the planet to have the capacity to notice assumptions, set them aside, be uncomfortable with other humans, stay with them in joyful, difficult, or confusing moments without leaving the contact. But when we're coming towards another person with time and space for contact, that we do it so much better than we do it now. And I'd like that to happen all the time, everywhere, and that we just knew how to do that all the time, everywhere. Imagine what it would mean to know how to do this all the time, everywhere. Narendra Kabal is a contributing author to the 2020 anthology, Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge, which set out to establish curiosity as a genuine and recognizable discipline worthy of further study and discussion. One of the editor's foundational proposals is that we create space for curiosity in all its multiplicity across the lifespan, and that we do so in community. Sidewalk Talk is one example of doing just that. I hope there are others. I invite you to join me in finding them. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us here today. You can find all my episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guests, Narendra Kaval and Tracy Rubel. Links to Curiosity Studies and Sidewalk Talk on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Slow Lane Lover by Barstool from Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, 
choose to be curious.